<clears throat> Let me pray for our time. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at your word, your word which proceeds from your mouth, which is a light to our path, which is a light to Jesus, which is a light to salvation. And so we ask now that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 8. Now this is the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. Well, we're back in the letter to the Hebrews, and these uh, hearers here are greatly confused. Their theology is greatly muddled. And as a good pastor, what does the uh, writer to the Hebrews do? He corrects their theology, he points them to Scripture, and ultimately he points them to Christ as he shows that Christ fulfills all of the promises of the, New, of the Old Testament. In vain, these people, apparently, from the best information we have, were looking for a Levitical Messiah, somebody who would come back and reestablish the Levitical priesthood, but in greater glory. And sadly, what that hope was was in vain, because there would be no other person to come in that line. It was done away with. There was a new priesthood, a new high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what the writer is demonstrating to his hearers with Scripture, with Scripture. Now, in our day, it is often the case that more voices or louder voices are given great attention, or great seal is given great attention. And yet, that is not always the case that what, what, what comes with great zeal is true, 
It doesn't matter if millions or billions are saying something. It doesn't mean it's true. We've seen this already from Acts 19 when in Ephesus we hear this great crowd of people saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours. For two hours. Proclaiming a lie. Proclaiming a falsehood. Proclaiming idolatry. And yet it's no different in our time that the voices we hear, no matter how loud they are, no matter what kind of crowds they bring, the question is, is it true? And even more so, is it true according to the word of God, which does not lie? And so in every time we hear an ideology, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, the question is, is it scriptural? Is it biblical? Are its roots in Scripture? And does it lead to the glory of Christ and his person and work? Is that the end for which these, these, these uh, groups are, are, are aiming at? Our brother Ed alluded to it in terms of justice or compassion, but with false ends. And so we always have to come back to the light of the word. It is there for us to be our light to be a discerner between good and evil. The thing that these people have not done as they should. So we want to check the root system of everything we hear. And there's legions of these types of things and we can't spend our time just looking at all these things all the time. I think even those in the church, those who are pastors, get drifted away looking to all these things and they're neglecting the word of God. And so their their establishment in the light of the word has been dulled. And so they can't tell the difference. Because their meditation has not been day and night on the word of God. But on the ills of the world. And so we always need to think about this. We have to be very, very careful. Paul says it very simply. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And so we can check out these these movements to say, does it originate from Scripture? Are its roots in Scripture? And does it lead to the glory of Christ, his person and work, as we have it revealed in 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 our word? The word of God is never inconsistent. It's never inconsistent. I was just reading about those who were testifying about Paul. Paul was on trial, and they're just lying straight out. Twisting things he said. I think of the uh, television show, Hawaii Five-0. Some of, some of you were here last week during discipleship. I used to like to watch that show. Not the new version, but the old version. I'm not saying the new version is not okay. Still a great theme song. But as I, I, I got to watch one of the original Hawaii Five-0s. It might have been the pilot. And they had a lot of uh, filler tape of McGarrett riding in the car all the time. You know, that was a lot of what he did. He got into a police car, he drove, and he got out of a police car. And so I'm watching this. I'm watching this on a color television. Not black and white where you can't tell the difference. And so uh, this one scene, McGarrett gets out of his car. He's got a gray suit on. He bounds up the steps of the governor's palace. He walks into the office. He has a blue suit. Now, maybe he had this thing where the moisture changes the color. I don't like a, a mood ring. I don't know. 
But there's an obvious inconsistency in the editing that was going on. Or another one which you could see in black and white is McGeer gets into a two-door car. He's driving, driving, driving. He gets out. It's a four-door. That is not the word of God. All the pieces fit together. It doesn't mean we understand how they fit together, but they absolutely do because God is true and he's not inconsistent with himself. And we should have absolute confidence in the word of God. We have promises that were made and kept in the word of God that lead us on to wait for the, for the son to return with great hope and confidence. Absolute confidence. And so this wonderful, wonderful pastor who wrote this letter, he brings them back to Scripture, he exegetes the Old Testament for them, and shows them Christ. What else can you ask for? And so this morning, I'd like to look at this passage. I know it was a long title. Next week's title is long, too. And those are pretty much my points. But the overarching thing is, this, is, is the superiority of Christ, of course, But the first point is the superiority of location of where Christ ministers, the superiority of location. Secondly, the superiority of the promises on which the uh, the new covenant is based, the superiority of the promises, and finally, the superior results, the the superior results that these lead to. So first, the superior location in verses 1 to 5. Now, this is the point in which we are saying I'm sorry, now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Our brother Todd read that verse earlier in the Old Testament reading. Again, we see how the scriptures are totally consistent. We see how the writer to the Hebrews goes back to the Old Testament. He quotes Old Testament scripture to make his point. And this is a phrase we keep hearing over and over as uh, God prescribes how to be worshipped in the Old Testament. Make it according to the pattern you saw on the mountain. Make it according to the pattern you saw on the mountain. But we might say, really? Is it really that much glorious? Is, is, the, is the reality much more uh, so great compared to the earthly? I mean, the earthly was pretty good. Didn't the tabernacle and the temple have much glory? And the answer is yes, they did have glory. They did have glory. In some ways, you could argue that the temple had more glory than the tabernacle. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Greece. I have not. My my wife and my children have, and I've seen pictures of the Parthenon. It is a beautiful building on a beautiful hill or a beautiful mount. But I never got to go to Greece or uh, to go to Greece to see this. But I did see the replica in Nashville, and it's worth going to. It is. It is a beautiful building. It's also sad because there's a big statue of Athena in there, uh, the one who was dedicated to. But the architecture is just beautiful. And I love architecture. But even more than the Parthenon, as glorious as it is, the temple was glorious. It's a beautiful building. 
But that's not really why it was so glorious. It's because the presence of God was there in a unique way, just as it was in the tabernacle. Think about this, that on the whole face of the earth, as far as we know from Scripture, I'm not sure what was happening with Melchizedek, to be honest. But we know for the people of God, as they traveled, as they sojourned, and they had the tent, and they had the tabernacle, above all other nations, they had the true God abiding in a unique way, in the Holy of Holies, that special place that uh, the high priest could only go into one time during the year, one time. And so they had the glory of glories, they had the presence of God, unlike the other nations in their false temples and their false gods. God's unique presence, his true meeting with man. His true meeting with man. It was a dangerous place. If he made a mistake, he would die. Because the holiness of God is so great and so glorious. And not to be trifled with. Not to be trifled with. He is still holy. He is still holy. And he has sent his holy one to save a people for himself who are to be holy. As he is holy. And so they had this this great glory that they had that would go with them. And then finally would be established in the temple for a time. It was the greatest place on earth. The greatest place on earth. And yet, that was like a drop compared to glory itself. That was a picture. It was a picture of heaven. It was a copy of what was there. It was a shadow. It wasn't the reality. And if that could be so glorious, what does heaven have? It's incredible glory. Incredible glory. We already heard how Moses was supposed to make it exactly according to the pattern. He got a foretaste. He got a foreglimpse of the, of the reality in, in Isaiah 66.1, we hear, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? The temple couldn't hold his glory. The temple, he, he is infinite. It wouldn't hold it, but he gave him a taste. And it was a glorious taste. And it was the best taste in the world. It was the best taste in the world. You know, if you've ever been, you know, sometimes people have restaurant week and you get a little taste of stuff. Probably things you want, I want more of that. I want more of that one. But how much more we want the glory, unbounded, totally free, that God has, has purchased for us. That wonderful, wonderful experience. And so we don't want just the copy or the shadow as glorious as it is. We want the reality. And that is what Christ has purchased for us, the reality. To be able to be a part of the reality And we know that it is ours. We know that it has been established and it is final because when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. From top to bottom. As though you could see that what was accomplished in heaven was trickling down or more right, boldly coming down into the temple. And the curtain was was torn in two, demonstrating there's access into heaven now. Because of Christ and his work. And we'll look at this again next week, Lord willing. So, Christ 
has ministered in a better location, a superior location, in a real location that the temple and the tabernacle were pictures of. But God wants us to understand that. That's why it's so important to know the Old Testament. It informs our view of what Christ has done. It informs our view. It fills it out in great detail. It focuses our our picture of Christ as we see in a more poignant way uh, from the Old Testament picture types what Christ has done on our behalf. So he's at a superior location, but he's... These things that we receive are based on better promises or superior promises. Hebrews 8, 6 to 8 begins this section. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Better promises. Better promises. How is, how is it better? The Old Testament was based on obedience. Do this and live. Do this and live. It's very simple. You know, in our world, if you can do that, if you get somebody, somebody you hire can do that, do this, they're great. It's great if they can accomplish the task that you give them. But the only problem was this was an impossible task. It was an impossible task. Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Or Ezekiel 20.11, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. All you got to do is do them perfectly. And you will live. Jesus himself interacted with a lawyer. Luke 10, 25 to 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Jesus himself refers to the Old Testament. How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus said that. But the problem is, the lawyer didn't get it that that was an impossible task for him. An impossible task that he had no hope of fulfilling. That it was to to drive him to Christ who did fulfill the law perfectly. Do this and live. Do this and live. We can't do it. We can't do it. The law was good. The law was holy. The law was perfect. But the law was like an incredible incredible medical test that wasn't fuzzy or unclear, but brought to light the real problem. More precise, more sharp. So that the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demonstrates that it's not just killing somebody that's murder, but you see the inclinations that lead to that. You fail the test. You've murdered in your heart. Or Jesus compares lust with adultery. There's an act of adultery. It's a, it's a true act. It's a wrong act. But lust is the root of it. I, I, I don't know where the passage is. I probably should have quoted this one. But I've been thinking about this passage. 
where the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, he says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man. And he started, he goes through this list of sins. You know, Calvin said that the heart is an idol maker, but it's also a sin maker. And you think about this, if we understood that passage right, we should despair that internally we have this source of evil by nature has fallen in Adam that all it can do is produce corruption and death and sin. I've mentioned my friend last week who got COVID about two or three weeks ago. Well, his father and my father died within a week of each other. His father was in a car accident. And at first, everything seemed okay. And then they found out there was internal bleeding and he died. What a sad thing. It was, there was a source internal that couldn't keep him from living. And yet, that's what the scripture says about our hearts apart from Christ, fallen in Adam, that only sin comes out of it. I know a few weeks ago we celebrated our graduates. What if graduation from any institution required every grade you got was a 100? Every grade. Now, maybe some of you did that. Every every thought you had about your professor was good. Every thought you had about the God's providence in the midst of your studying was perfect. That all these things are required in order for you to pass or graduate. Nobody would graduate. But this is what the law requires. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. That's what it required. And it also required sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And yet these sacrifices, as much of the Old Testament, were pointing forward to a great work that God would do in his son, that there would be one final sacrifice, once for all, that we'll talk about in future weeks. And it had incredible promises, incredible promises. We just read part of it as we did our scripture reading earlier from Jeremiah. He gives you a new heart, a heart of flesh. We see it also in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Not do this and live, but I will give you the heart so that you can begin to do this. That you will start to have a new focus. You will start to want to glorify God. You will start to want to love God and obey him. It's, it's what Paul says about second, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God fulfills our punishment in Christ And he gives us his perfect righteousness as we come to have faith in Christ. The law was good, but men couldn't do the law because of weakness of the flesh. They too were fallen in Adam. But in this wonderful promise of the new covenant, new affections, new inclinations, new creation. All ours in Christ. All ours in Christ. You know, I'm sure if you have any sense of your own heart, You know, even as as children of God, we see the remaining corruption and we moan and we groan and we confess it and 
God forgives us and gives us newness of life. But I've wondered, I think this is a helpful thing when you're reading any part of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, put your, yourself in their shoes. What was it like for Moses to go up on the mountain in the cloud and have the finger of God right on the tablets? That was glorious. That was glorious. But how much more glorious when we see our own sin that he gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart. He takes a dead heart and he gives us a live heart. He takes away our rebellion against himself and gives us love for him that we might worship him in spirit and truth. And this should be great, great encouragement and impetus to repent. This is not who we are in Christ now. This is not our new identity. We are new creatures in Christ. To be holy like the Father is holy and like the Son is holy and like the Holy Spirit is holy. Great promises, great promises that we could never accomplish ourselves. And so we have a superior location, heaven, superior promises, newness of life, becoming children of God, being made new. And finally, we have superior results. We've already spoken about this in great measure. We also see in uh, Hebrews 8.13, I'm sorry, Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. No more. They're done away with. Todd said, from the east is from the west. Now, I don't know the history of of uh, geography, you know, when people started saying, well, wait a minute, east and west kind of meet if you keep going around the globe. But that wasn't their view. I'm pretty sure it was like a line. It goes on and on in that direction for infinity. And on and on and on in that direction for infinity. That's how he separated our sin. I mean, that picture says it gets further and further and further away, if you can imagine that. That's ours in Christ. Forgiveness of sins. He remembers them no more. This is, this is one of those superior results that God has done for us in Christ. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? You know, when I was a, when I was a child, I remember the first time I knew something wasn't right in the world. <laughs> It wasn't when my mom died when I was six. That was a very sad time, and um, it put life in perspective. But I remember I was very young, I don't know, four or five. We lived in an apartment complex that was next to a housing development. And I went out in the morning, and there was this, these two boys. Now, I'm half Irish. My mom was Irish. Both of them had red hair. Sorry, my redhead friends. And one is laying down on his back. The other one is straddling him. And he has, he's grabbing his shoulders. So one guy's grabbing his shoulders, the guy on top, or his head, I can't remember. He's going, boom, 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 boom. Okay? Now, that would have been bad enough on the grass. But this is on the sidewalk. I thought, I'm going back in today. I'm not playing outside. <laughs> not with these guys on the loose. You know, I thought, what is this guy doing? If you've ever hit your head on cement, it's like, this is his brother. It's his brother. But I think that it helps us look into the sinfulness of sin. And this is what God has delivered us from. You know, we go back to two other brothers. A brother kills his brother over worship. There were no nations 
There were no people groups. But sin had already entered the world, and without having any division of cultures or anything, the same family, boom, 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 killing. And we need to take that to heart. It's not to minimize the sadness in the world. It's not to minimize the wickedness in the world. But I think sometimes we get overwhelmed. It's like, look, it's just another indication that we live in a sinful world. I don't say that lightly, but we need to know what the root is. And the only solution to that root, it's Christ. It's Christ. It's interesting as I've looked at technology over the years. You know, some of us have lived through the record and then the eight tracks. That lasts about two months, I feel like. Eight tracks and cassettes and uh, CDs and now live streaming. But in all those technological advances sin follows good things follow you know easier access to information but sin follows in its in its path as well people steal and that's the way the world is there's nothing that is new that doesn't the sin doesn't follow into but righteousness does too by God's people but it's important to kind of boil it down the, the problem is sin you know, James tells us why there are problems with wars. It's the heart. But it helps us to look, because we get, we get overwhelmed when we hear the many, many voices of crying out of injustice and things like that. And we should be all for justice, but we need to know what the answer is. I think the evil one has gained a foothold or a, an advantage in that we, we tend to get all lathered up about the symptoms but we don't care about the cause root and the solution. I had this one dear Aunt Mary. She was one of those relatives you knew that you weren't, she didn't just put up with you. She actually liked you or loved you. Okay? And I was talking to her at a wedding of one of my cousins. We're sitting there, and she had gone to the doctor. She had a really bad cough. She went to the doctor. And uh, she's recounting this story to me. She said, I went to the doctor, and he did some tests, and you know, I've had this cough, and so then after all the tests, he says, well, Mary, I want to get some more tests. And she's like, Doc, what are you going to do about this cough? He says, Mary, you've had a heart attack. She thought it was some low-level problem. It was much deeper. She, it was much deeper, and this kind doctor revealed it to her. But I think sometimes we have a, a superficial view of what's going on. But the Word of God tells us what is exactly going on and why it happened, and what God has done to remedy it. The word of God, which is unchangeable. So we shouldn't deal with the symptoms. It doesn't, there's no excuse for any Christian not to be kind to any other individual in the world. There's no excuse. Jesus told us to love our enemies, which means speaking truth, which means presenting Christ. But there's no excuse for that because we're new creatures in Christ. There's two, there's two lineages. Seed of the woman, Christ. Seed of the serpent, the reprobate or the unbeliever. There's only two nationalities, really. Believer, unbeliever. And yet Christ has come to save us. That we would not perish. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And I, as a young Christian, I was all about love. And I'm still all about love. You know? I didn't want to hear all these technical theological terms. That just, 
That seemed to muddy the water. Give me love. Give me love. Love is Jesus. And it's right. It's right. But that's like the artistic aspect, in a sense, of, of, what, of what God has done. Then we have the mechanical or the scientific or the mathematical, where we see what he did because he loved us. You know, we, it's so easy to throw around, God loves unconditionally. God loves unconditionally. And I understand what people mean, and I've probably said it myself. But God's love came at a great cost to him. His beloved son, in whom he was well pleased, came and took on human flesh and suffered as a human, a human for a human, not animal sacrifices, a man for a man, a federal head for a federal head. And he's done it, and it's been finished, and it's been accomplished, and that is the message of the church. It is finished. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or if you're a child of God, go straight to God with your sin and acknowledge it. Bring it into the light of Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the glory of this new covenant that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Yes, the love of God is unconditional in a sense to us, but it was at great cost to him. And that's why he's so offended if people turn away from him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased that I've sent on your behalf. And you trifle with him? This is why he gave everything for us and we're to give everything to him. It's totally proportionate in that sense. We'll never give him what he deserves. But that's how we live our life for the rest of our lives. Living for Christ. It's the fulfillment of Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, eternally interceding on our behalf. And his sacrifice did pay for our sins, unlike the animal sacrifices. All those sacrifices pointed to his, but it was Christ and Christ alone who would do that. I'll close with Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 1.20. As we think about these promises, these greater promises that, uh, that Christ fulfilled in the new covenant, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, Father, what a great, great uh, joy it is, as, as Todd alluded to the power washer, that you power washed us through Christ, that we're acceptable in Christ. And, and Father, help us to keep those images in our mind that we might be reminded of who we are now. We've been cleansed. Don't go back to the filth. Don't go back. We surely will find remnants in our remaining corruption, and yet we bring it into the light. We bring it into the light before Christ. We confess it, and you cleanse us, and you lead us in newness of life. May that process never stop. May we not be like the the audience of the letter to the Hebrews, may we never be sluggish. May we never turn away to false doctrine, but keep us, Father, keep us in the light of your word. Keep us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.